Let's pray together. Father, we need so much more than clarity tonight. Uh, We need so much more than relevance. Uh, What we need is your spirit. Now, Lord, we don't live on bread alone, but we live on every word that comes from your mouth. And so, Lord, uh, we open our our mouths wide now. Would you fill them? Uh, Lord, would you change us? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, uh, today uh, we'll be looking at Luke. We've been in Acts for a long time, and uh, of course this week and next uh, we'll be looking at the gospel accounts of the events that we celebrate during Holy Week. Um, This week I read about a girl named Kayla. Uh, Kayla went on a short-term mission trip, and she was feeling really good about herself before she went. She felt so good about herself that she was able to scrounge up some money, raise uh, raise a little more from her friends and family, uh, and give up uh, the weeks of vacation that were given her at work. And so she went, and she spent her short-term mission trip was to go to a summer camp, a summer camp that was uh, for families with special needs children. And so the way that this camp worked is that the whole family went, not just their children, but the whole family. And they went, and, um, and she was so excited about this opportunity. And about two days in, uh, the mother uh, that worked with uh, the child, the, the, the mother of the child that... Um, Kayla was working with, the family, um, went to the camp directors and said that uh, Kayla had said something negative about her. And so the camp directors go to Kayla and they say, hey, did you, did, did you say what this mother said you said? And she said, I have no recollection of saying those things. I said this cloud of negativity hung over Kayla. There was no real resolution. Because what she thought that her time and her money would provide for her is some gratitude would give her some warm fuzzies from spending her paid vacation in this way. But it didn't. Instead, her time and her money got her drama, got her slandered, and suddenly sabotaged her reputation. Have you ever been in that situation before? Where you were expecting warm fuzzies, instead you got slandered? See, Kayla learned a really important lesson that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples throughout his public ministry. It's real simple. That their life was on the same trajectory as his. A trajectory towards death. Kayla had to realize that the darkness in her own heart was about her motivations for a, mission, for a missionary trip. She was going to have to experience the same things that Jesus did during his last days. He's going to have to, she, she was going to have to experience shame and slander and drama. But see, the disciples just couldn't get it through their thick skulls. They kept on wanting to sing Hosanna. They kept on wanting to wave palm branches. And there are two reasons that they couldn't get this through their heads. The first is that they had other plans for Jesus than his death. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans. They wanted Jesus to set up his kingdom in power there in Jerusalem. Because really all of Jesus' life, he's been exercising this authority. Authority over creation. Authority over people's bodies. Authority over people's souls. So surely Jesus could replace Caesar as the next king and be in the line of David. So that was one reason it was really hard for them to accept that Jesus' life was heading towards death because they had other plans. The second reason 
was because if they were going to follow Jesus, it was going to cost them everything. If he was going to die, and they're going to follow him, that means they're going to die. They know that they're going to have to lose everything. They're going to, that Jesus is going to take precedence over their family. Jesus is going to take precedence over their material goods. And Jesus, ever since Luke chapter 9, has been deliberately moving towards Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus turned his face and set it towards Jerusalem. And he's been predicting his death all the way from Luke 9 to our passage in Luke 19. And it still never sinks in. So then we get to the end of this journey to Jerusalem today in Luke 19. Jesus is finally entering this great city. And he comes during Passover. And the expectations of what Jesus was going to do to the Romans, they've only increased in their mind. Because since Luke chapter 9, Jesus keeps exercising his authority. And now he's entering into Jerusalem at the high point of the Jewish calendar year, Passover. It's perfect timing for a good old-fashioned Roman butt-whooping. That's what they think. And I think this, is, this text is crucial for us. Because if you call yourself a believer in Jesus, then your life has an arc. Your life has a trajectory, too. And it's important that you and I have proper expectations of what that arc is and what happens if you don't follow that arc. And what Holy Week does is that it reorients our expectations. It shows us very clearly where we're headed. And Jesus tries to get the disciples on board in Luke chapter 9, and he tries again in Luke chapter 19. He's trying to get us on board too. So let's read our text for this evening. Luke 19, starting verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage, in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks out on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of the Lord. All right, so two points tonight. Phony praise and authentic tears. Phony praise and authentic tears. We see the phony praise in verses 28 to 40, and then we see the authentic tears in 41 through 44. 
Luke is doing a, a masterful job here, verses 20 to 40, to present Jesus as a servant and a king. He plays both roles simultaneously throughout his whole life, and Luke is going to great pains to make that obvious to us. Here are the ways that he's a king. Look at how Jesus talks about the situation he tells his, um, he tells his disciples about. He says, hey, there's going to be a cult. Here's where he's going to be. It's going to be tied up, and it's going to be unridden. How does Jesus know all that? Because he's king. That's why. Then notice what Jesus is sitting on. This cold has never been ridden, and it's not proper for a king to, 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 to sit on an um, unsaddled donkey. So you, they cloaked it. They put their clothes on it so that he would have something to ride on. So Jesus knew everything about where this colt was going to be, or this, where this donkey was going to be. He knew everything about what, what, this, what this situation was for the donkey. Then it's cloaked, and then the, Jesus comes walking in on this donkey, and then they put more cloaks on the road. He's getting this red carpet treatment. Why were they doing this? Because they recognized Jesus as king. Their expectations is that Jesus is about ready to set up shop. He's going to set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem on this big day, the Passover. And then it all culminates in verse 38. And Jesus greeted with this huge crowd who noticed him as king. Look at what they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, these just aren't the 12 disciples. This is the great multitude of disciples. These are like all, almost all the people who would say that they believe in this Jesus. They've all gathered here. They all have, they shout in a loud voice this song because he's king. But for all the hoopla and all the show, there's also notes of Jesus suppressing his raw power. Here are just a few. Notice what he rides in on. He rides in on a donkey. Every other kind of king would have ridden in on a horse because donkeys are for common folk and horses are for people of great importance. And then you had to know his followers. His followers throughout his whole life, the situation is no different here in Luke 19. There are followers who are a mix of riffraff. There's some fishermen, there's some dubious women. There's some tax collectors, there's street people, there's people who are mentally ill. And that's who's following this king. Not an entourage of VIPs. Because Jesus is this simultaneously servant and king, king and servant. And the crowd clearly notices the king part. But they don't make the connection on the servant part. They forget all about Jesus has made multiple predictions about his upcoming death. That he's going to be delivered to the authorities. He's not going to conquer them. These followers forget that Jesus told them that he's going to have to die in order to reign. They're not connecting the fact that he's been blowing up their expectation of who the Messiah is his whole life. Even in our text, the donkey is a demonstration of his kingship. It's one of humility and service, yet they can't even see it. Why? Because if Jesus chooses death, if he chooses suffering, if he chooses humility, 
and then he calls them to follow him, they too are going to have to embrace humility. They too are going to have to choose suffering. They too are going to have to die. So friends, can I tell you where to begin on this journey of suffering, on this trajectory, on this arc? It's to admit that your praise is phony. It hurts, doesn't it? It kind of feels like death. In fact, it probably feels offensive to be told that your praise, maybe even tonight, has been a charade. Because these same people go from singing the song in verse 30. Which, where, where are we? Verse 38. To screaming, crucify him, just four days later. Now, their song in verse 38 is genuine. They really are excited about Jesus. They're not faking it. But what should they have been doing? If they're not supposed to be singing and proclaiming verse 38, what should they have been doing? Well, they should be singing. Because if they're not going to sing, the rocks are going to. That's verse 40. But what Jesus wants more than lip service he, is that he wants our songs to be sung with broken hearts. See, those closest to Jesus should have recognized that what, what was really going on here. They should have recognized that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. They should have realized that no one around Jesus really understood his nature as a servant. They should have squared their hearts with their impending suffering. So is your heart broken on how you've refused to accept the way of suffering? See, we refuse suffering every time we refuse repentance. We refuse suffering every time we refuse to extend forgiveness. We refuse suffering every time we shake our fist at God because we didn't get what we want. We refuse suffering every time we don't stand with the poor. We refuse suffering every time we don't speak out for Jesus when our reputation is on the line. See, repentance and forgiveness, accepting pain as from the hand of God, sharing the gospel, loving the poor, they all, every single one of them, require you and require me to suffer. All of them require the death of our ego. So what do we do? What do we do instead? We sing these counterfeit praises rather than sing with broken hearts. But you know what shocks me about this whole passage? is how Jesus responds to them. See, look what he doesn't do. He doesn't chide them for their charade. Rather, he receives their praise. And then he cries these authentic tears in verse 41. Look at his authentic tears. Look at verse 41. Do you see the three things he does in succession? He draws near. He sees the city. And then he weeps. Sees the city. And then he weeps. Think about drawing near. Every step as he rides on that donkey, he's getting closer and closer to his death. He had a lot of strategies in his bag he could have used. 
He could have tried to talk his way out of this. He could have turned and hightailed as far as Jerusalem as possible. But he doesn't. Instead, he draws near. And then it says he sees the city. It doesn't say he drew near to the city. It says he draws near and he sees the city. I think sees the city is a really important verb to throw in there. It's fascinating. Because if you drew the lot that Jesus did, wouldn't you have looked around the city? Because to look at the city meant that you were going to have to look at your rejection. Maybe you would have looked down. You'd have just grinded it out and achieved the task that was appointed to you. But not Jesus. He looks squarely at God's holy city. This city with a long, long, disappointing history of not recognizing the Messiah. They've had thousands of years of God preparing them to meet Jesus on this day. But not only do they not recognize him, they end up rejecting him altogether because he is a suffering servant. So he draws near, he sees the city, and then he weeps. He weeps. The word for weeps here, it's a really strong word. It really means full-on sobbing. It means wailing. It means an ugly cry. Jesus had an ugly cry while sitting on the donkey pulling into Jerusalem. He's weeping for this city. He's weeping for the ones who will soon shout, crucify him. Doesn't that make you tremble a little bit? Even in our complicity, even though we've belted out phony praises, Jesus weeps for us. Jesus' tears for you and me, even our complicity, is the ultimate sign that Jesus is an indifference toward you. Does this move you? Does it move you that Jesus wept for you? His tears are like that of a parent who watches their child do something really irresponsible. This week I was really haunted by something that happened to me about, I don't know, I guess it's been about four years now. I had a friend named Pete. Um... Pete was a member at our church, and uh, Pete struggled with an opiate addiction. Uh, Pete was really honest with it about about this with two people, me and his parents. I never knew his parents. Pete was well out of college; he was close to thirty, and he talked glowingly about his parents. And always kind of made me rub my head, like, "Wow, of all people, for you to be really honest about your addiction with, you're honest with your parents." I didn't know his parents. They didn't go to our church. I didn't know them from any other sphere of my life until Pete overdosed and died. The day that Pete overdosed, I went over to his parents' house. It's the first time I ever met his dad. There were a lot of other people around. I was there for about two minutes. I prayed for Pete's mom and dad, and I left. A few days later, Pete's funeral happened. I talked to his mom and dad a little bit more. Everybody else, there's hundreds of people at his funeral, and I just hugged his mom and dad, told him I loved him, and left. And about a year after Pete died, 
his dad texted me and said, hey, can I get together with you? And I said, man, I'd love to. So me and Pete, mom and dad, met at Third Street stuff. And we sat there and we just filled in a lot of gaps. They wanted to know the things that Pete had told me about how he had walked with the Lord. And I wanted to know what their relationship was like with Pete. And I said, what, what was it like when, when you first found out that Pete was a user, how did you guys respond? And they said, oh, we tried to slap his hand. We tried to be really hard on him. And eventually we told him we were sorry. And we just wanted to love him and support him. And we're going to leave the light on for him no matter what. And they said from that point on, from the time that they said they were sorry, until Pete overdosed, Pete told them everything. And I said, well, what was it like as a parent knowing that Pete was using, that Pete was abusing these substances? And they said, we wept. We wept harder from the time he started to be honest with us until he died than we've wept since the time he died until now. Because we were weeping over his irresponsibility to us. And friends, when Jesus looks at you and me, he sees addicts. Now, I, I know you, you, you may or may not be hooked on opiates. You may be hooked on something else. But we're all addicts. We all love us some us. The way we view all of our life is through our lens. Jesus sees us hooked on us. He weeps. Think about it. He's weeping over people who want to use him. They want to use him to accomplish the political freedom that they so badly desire. And the good news of the gospel is that our desire to use Jesus does not keep him from loving us. Rather, he just pushes through into our dark hearts to rescue us, to rescue us from the domain of death. And he wants to give us his peace. It's a a peace much greater than that found in political freedom. It's a peace that can be found in the depths of our souls, peace that comes with the forgiveness of sins, peace that comes with being in right relationship with God. But this crowd makes their choice. They choose to not embrace a suffering servant. And so they are going to suffer the dire consequences. And so they experience the destruction outlined in verses 42 through 44. And what Jesus outlines in verses 42 through 44 is something that's going to happen just a few decades forward. 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem happens. There's not one stone left on top of the other. The whole city was in shambles, including the Jews' beloved temple. So brothers and sisters, if you don't see the meaning behind Jesus' tears, if you don't want the peace that he offers, if you're not going to able to square your soul with the reality of your phony praise, it's going to get real ugly for you. Ugly like it did in 70 AD for Jerusalem. That kind of destruction is going to come to you, it's going to come to me if we reject Jesus. So here's a choice for me and you today. We can choose Jesus and we can suffer like a servant and we can get the peace that's going to abide forever. Or we can reject Jesus 
and we're going to suffer his judgment and never experience the peace that he offers. So suffering is going to come one way or the other. Which one will you choose? Remember our friend Kayla at the beginning. She really wanted some gratitude. She really wanted those warm fuzzies that come with serving Jesus. But she didn't want the suffering. How about you? Is that the way you view your vocation? It's the way you view being a parent? You just want the warm fuzzies? You just want the hugs before bedtime? Or do you want the suffering that comes with dying to yourself every day? Friends, the reality of Palm Sunday is that Jesus loves you. <laughs> I can't imagine. He, he cried for us there. I wouldn't have cried for me there. I would have shunned me there. But Jesus doesn't shun you, friends. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your love for us. <laughs> Lord, that when we don't think anybody else cries for us and nobody else really cares for us, we know that you do. You cry over us even in all of our irresponsibility. Oh, Lord, what grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.